Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. How you doing, Dave? We're back for episode 47 of Plastic Model Mojo. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. All's right in the modeling world. How about okay. yourself? Uh, I'm pretty good tonight. It's raining, yeah. but... Yeah. Oh, well. The yard I'm, needs it. I'm inside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to model outside in the rain, man. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, what's up in your model sphere this week? Anything exciting? Well, uh, progress has been made uh, on a couple of fronts. Uh, uh, two of the three models that I've currently got going are moving forward. Um, I've started to make a few purchases uh, post nationals. You know, usually after the nationals, you kind of, kind of uh, shot your wad as far as money goes for a while, and so there tends to be a post nationals. Uh, post-nationals purchasing hiatus, but that's uh, that seems to have gone by the wayside. So uh, my only problem is, you know, summer moves into fall and it's uh, all the yard work, pool work, all of those responsibilities. And the kids are back in school and back in sports. And so, and then you're wrapping up the last bit of summer as far as to the 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 model wife wanting to do activities such as go to Churchill Downs or go out canoeing and uh so that eats up some time that otherwise would be spent huddled in the basement getting paler by the minute. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> well, I've uh got my kingfisher sold on eBay. That was that was kind of bountiful. You made you made some money. You ended up with a free free 30 second scale kingfisher and made a little boot i did too that's right so you know i put it out there for a reasonable price and it got bid up to an unreasonable price i don't know i don't know if it's unreasonable (laughs) but it's more than i would have paid for it but yeah yeah maybe they'll actually build it that uh, I hope they do. Listen, I I think that that thirty second scale Kingfisher kit by Kitty Hawk is impressive as heck. Uh, that one we saw at the Nationals, uh, just a very very impressive model. Other than that, uh, I can all wait till bench top halftime report and all that stuff. So that's about that's, the uh, modeling adjacent thing I've gotten done this week. All right, all right. So uh, Mike, are, are you sipping on a modeling fluid tonight? I'm sipping on a little bullet orange label, which I think's an eight year, maybe not, but probably an old favorite. Yes. I was going to say the review at the end is probably not going to be a surprise. Probably not. Yeah. What about you? Well, uh, I've, I've decided I've, I reached up into your neck of the woods and I am having a, uh, Volta Hefeweizen by Pivot Brewing out of Lexington, Kentucky. Oh yeah. They are both a brewery and a cidery. So they make both beers and ciders. And this is the first I'd never heard of it before. Um I you know, this is the this is my first experience and no no sound of the can opening because I already opened it, but <laughs> no. Initial impression isn't bad. We'll we'll talk about it later. But uh 
I'll let you know later on as we go through the episode how it is. All right. Well, we got a fair amount of listener mail again. Not not good. quite as much as last time. We kind of built the last episode. That's a big segment, but it was yes. some good stuff. Uh, we got quite a few, though. We won't get into that. So, All right. First is uh, our friend Brian Latour up in Ottawa, Canada. We get a lot from Ottawa. Those guys are active. Active. Got an active fan base up there. Um, yeah. He is uh, responding to our discussion about uh, painting yellow. Mm-hmm. And he's got yet another way to do it. Okay. I'm kinda, al- always open to a new one. Well, this one's interesting because he's kind of a uh, a figure painter and does a lot of, uh, I guess, fantasy and s- sci-fi stuff. Yeah. Um, this this technique that he's used and has seen used, and, and thinking back, I've seen this as well, uh, but he did remind me of it because one I wouldn't have considered. Uh, I don't know if it'd work on an, well, let me get to it. I don't know if it'd work on an airplane wing or not, but it might. Uh, he starts painting the model white with uh, purple shading. Which is kind of, well, you know, it's kind of in that same vein of reds and and, uh, And pinks pinks that we got from some of the other listeners. Yeah. And then he follows that up with an artist's acrylic ink, not a paint, but an ink. And he's Mm. got uh, FW acrylic ink or artist's acrylic inks or uh, Dallar and Rowney, a brand. Mm -hmm. I've not heard of that. And this will tint the white areas yellow and then a combination of yellow and purple adds some contrasting shading in the yellow kind of spectrum for uh for the areas you shaded in purple i you know i had a roommate long time ago back when i first hired in and moved up here to lexington from tennessee that uh, was a into warhammer and uh, you know other fantasy figures and uh, some of those figure painter inks were just starting to be all the all the thing there for for that crowd this in the <laughs> early 90s i guess so i'd seen this before i'd seen some figures his brother had done tinning figures with inks and just building the layers up and let it accumulate in the nooks and crannies. And uh, you get a kind of a, an easy color graduation. I guess it probably takes some skill to, 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 to manipulate it correctly, but uh, yeah, inks. I do think that, you know, inks lend themselves to the one thing that I think is probably pretty important when painting yellow, which is th- thin coats Trying to make yellow opaque all at once, I don't think work ever works. I think that one of the keys to a good yellow is multiple thin light coats rather than trying to build up heavier heavier coats to make it cover more quickly. Yes, I agree. And that's been a common theme with some of the folks making suggestions to us. And... Uh, Coincidentally, one of those is uh, Ed Barrett there out of California again. He uh, He's the one who we talked to in our Nats episode. Right. Built that Kingfisher you mentioned a little earlier. And he's coming at us again based on our uh, aftermarket conversation. We're getting a lot of mileage out of this. Okay. Uh, you know, he was a, a, let's see, a systems engineer for yep. uh, Jet Propulsion J- Laboratory. JPL, yeah. And... He makes a point that a lot of people don't realize, you know, one thing he thought we missed in our discussion that he's been, he's been on the soapbox about for some time is how to integrate the instructions for the aftermarket into the kit's instructions, especially a photo etch, because he, he uses a lot of PE and he says he doesn't think Ed, Edward has a piece that's too small for him to use, but it's always, when do you put it on? Yeah. Uh, when do you integrate it with the plastic? Too early and you break it off, too late and there's no room to put it in or you can't paint it. Uh, 
he's playing a system engineering approach and uh he said it's an, another subject he'd like to talk to us about so maybe we'll have hmm. ed back on here and uh Talk about uh, integrating aftermarket so you don't uh, paint yourself into a corner, pretty much. I suspect that you and he would have a really, both both being engineers and coming at it from an engineering approach, I suspect that's what you do, maybe without putting that name on it. But I suspect that's probably a lot of what you do when you're building these uh, models out of three or four different kits and, you know, grab bagging and, and all of that stuff. I suspect you you probably do that as almost second nature. Yeah, to some degree, I think so. And it's it's funny. I picked up uh, there's a gentleman who does a lot of large scale models. Uh, his name's Glenn Hoover, and he's got these self published books. You can print them on demand. Right. Uh, folks may have seen those. I've got his book on the uh, how to building the Kitty Hawk Kingfisher, and I got the other one. Another another one. He's got more than two of these uh, on building. Ravel's Arado AR-196, another kit I've got. And uh, he's a retired system engineer from the aerospace and defense industry. And same kind of thing Ed's talking about. He In these books, he actually does do that. Says, okay, here's all this aftermarket. On page three, when you're at this point in the instructions, this is when you integrate this piece of aftermarket. Something to that effect. The next time I come to see you, I'll bring these and you can check them out. They're kind of interesting. I'd like to look at them. I'd like to look at them. And besides, another excuse for you to come here and us to go out and hit a microbrewery or something and get some wings. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, again, on the aftermarket from episode 46, uh, Evan McCallum, Mr. Panzermeister 36 himself, has written us. All right. And he kind of says he's in agreement with you. He basically won't buy a set to just to improve the detail on a kit. He says for him, that's just too much work. Instead, he's buying aftermarket uh, for an interesting vehicle conversion or that corrects a, a known accuracy issue. Mm-hmm. He says, for example, uh, many of his Sturmgeschutz threes that he's built, he's bought these massive PE sets for and only yeah. used a handful of the parts. Yeah. I can believe that. (laughs) And he agrees with you that it's hard to make some things convincing folding up 2D shapes. Yes. That one of my, one of the things that irritates me about photo etch more than anything else is particularly where the manufacturer, the photo etch manufacturer wants you to cut off a molded on 3D part to then take a 2D piece of photo etch and fold it and try and make it a convincing 3D part. Sometimes, depending on the manufacturer, it works, but uh, but a lot of times it just it it's no improvement over what was there to begin with. And speaking of Evan, we need to get you and he on an episode, or you and him on an episode, and uh, uh, have you two geek out on the stu- on the Stugs because that well, conver- that conversation will will be very interesting to me. Well, that is in the works. We'll get to talk to Evan some more about Sturmgeschutz here. He's agreed to do it. So I just got to get on the calendar and get a, get a, get an outline up for him. So he knows what we're going to do with that. Okay. Uh, he closes. He also mentions how mentioned, you know, before how he liked interesting conversion sets. And he asked, does anyone else have a problem buying conversion sets for kits? They don't even own yet. Asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guilty of that. I I definitely have done that on one, if not more than one occasion. 
what what is a real killer is you get the you get the aftermarket conversion set and then you discover that the kit is no longer being molded and then so you have to go on to the secondary market to try and find it and man sometimes that's a that's a little bit of a struggle. I remember the Ravel Hawker Hunters in 72nd scale came out, beautiful kits of in demand, got snapped up, and then Ravel Germany stopped kitting them very quickly for a long time, and they became very difficult to find. Up next is uh, Scott Stokowiak, and he's from the Mid-Michigan Modelers up in Saginaw. Yep. And he's got a question for Dr. Miller. All right. And his question is, do you need to clean the airbrush when changing colors in a painting session? Uh, he's got a couple of Pache's and a Grex he hasn't tried yet. Uh, and he's been emptying the paint cup, wiping it out and uh, pulling the needle, blowing cleaner through it, all this just when changing colors. And he thinks that may not all be necessary. Perhaps just painting the order lighter colors to darker, you know, blow it through, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we'll forward that on to Scott or... I'll- for John, I want to hear what Dr. Miller has to say. I really do because I'm, I'm, I've been kind of in in our our listeners' camp as far as how I do it, or what I've got since I've got multiple airbrushes. I'll be painting one color with one airbrush, finish up that color, and if I'm immediately going to another color, I'll use a different airbrush so that well, it's not so I don't have that concern. Well, I'll blow thinner and start with the next color, which is going to be darker. That's what I do. Okay, so you go uh, always go lighter to darker. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, maybe I'll change if. if uh, yeah, we'll talk if, to Doctor Miller. We'll talk to Doctor Miller. I gotta make sure he gets these. Next up, Tom Choi. Now, he's the one you had the conversation with about adopting yes. kids at the Nationals, yep. and he's he's not from California. I got that all wrong. He's from Champaign, Illinois. Champaign, Illinois. And he's in the. Uh, Polish Coast Watchers chapter. And I think I have to go back and look at his email. I think he's in the in, in the Roscoe Turner chapter too. <laughs> oh, is he really? Uh, he said he used to be one of those guys who bought every aftermarket thing you could get for a particular model, try to make the big contest winner. And it slowed his builds down to one or two a year. That's yes. That sounds familiar. See, and that is that is one of the points I was trying to get across. Again, the thesis of my of the my uh, of my comments in the last episode was that aftermarket can be a uh, momentum killer. Um, you know, the and and somehow I think sometimes you feel like I've got to throw every piece of aftermarket at a kit to produce something spectacular. And I don't think that's the case. And I'll tell you what, some of the most spectacular models I've ever seen were out of the box. They were just built. Real, they started with a really good basic kit, and then they were executed well oh, all yeah. the way through. So I don't think I don't think that aftermarket and panels hanging open and you know photo etch this and that. I don't think that's that's as necessary as some people get it in their own heads that they feel that it is. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, uh, I kind of like, I'm the pick and choose kind of modeler. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, I you're, don't... you're, you're weird. You're different. <laughs> uh, he's gotten happier building out of the box and, and uh, you know, he'll get uh, the occasional conversion and decals and corrections only if they're necessary. Yep. 
like he, he built a, a, a Sukhoi 15 and uh, he, he, he did get a new nose for it, but he didn't get the new tail. Yep. Cause uh, we well, got the new nose for a 34. Oh, okay. He, Cause he, he would notice the nose he says, but uh, the, the 15, he, he didn't fix the tail on it. Cause he says he wouldn't notice it. Yeah. Huh? I, I know that feeling. <laughs> All right, Tom, glad we know where you're from now. Rock Rosak again from uh detail and scale. Sense yep. information, which I posted on the Facebook page for their second installment of their F-14 Tomcat uh, series. Yeah. Uh, Pacific Fleet and Reserve Squadrons. Well, and you know what? The F-14 is one of those aircraft that's, I don't know if it's the movie Top Gun or the Gulf of Sidra incidents or whatever, but the F-14 is one of those aircraft that that seems to have a following well in excess of its actual footprint in history. Uh, It just, it is. And also not only that, but it went through the series at the time of the, of its service in the Navy where you could find ones with really colorful markings. And then you could find others with really subdued markings and the, the, the aircraft weathered very interestingly. So you, if you want to go down that road, you can. So it doesn't surprise me that they're that they came out with this particular detail and scale. And finally, tonight's going to be Mr. Bob Bear from Charlotte, North Carolina, to the handsome Mojo guys. Oh God! <laughs> he says, "Well, that's what his wife says." Anyhow, well, <laughs> thank your wife for that. Yes. And he says he thinks PE could be the topic that goes on forever. Uh, I agree. He says he wishes PE was made out of skin. <laughs> okay that's an interesting i would rather have all my pe in brass i one of the things i don't like is edward's uh ste- stainless steel or whatever that metal is that they use i much prefer like airwaves something in brass i find it much 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 easier to work with well and he, well because the glue sticks better to skin than Yes. Right. Okay. You know where this okay. is going, right? Okay, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Took me a second. I figured okay, he, it out. He says he's tried different different CA adhesives, uh, different ways of applying the glue, but no matter what, that one critical piece just will not stick to the model. And he's yeah. asking, have we found a particular CA or a certain viscosity of glue that works best for us? And uh, he admits to being one who looks for additional det- details to apply to the kit, uh, you know, for a unique look. And uh, he's hoping to find the perfect technique for adding PE to plastic or even I, PE, or PE to itself. Well, PE to itself is a challenge. But here's, here's what I have found as far as PE to plastic. Don't use CA to begin with. Use either like Future or um, Gator Glue or something like that to get the part into the position that you want it in and get it stuck to the plastic, even if it's only lightly stuck. And then you then you do the technique that you see uh, Night Shift do all the time, which is take and apply the, in his case, black super glue to lock the, the photo etch part in place. And then you go back with the debonder to clean up any excess around the part. I think that works much better than trying to use straight super glue to 
directly attach a photo etch part to a plastic model. Well, he built the Amati U forty seven, which he says was an example of PE overload, and uh, I have that kit, and that's why he says he ended up soldering the the deck top deck to the sides because soldering was something he had confidence in. Well, that's the probably the best way to get PE to stick to itself. Oh, I agree. Know. In fact, uh, but that's uh, a, that's a pretty. That can be a steep skill curve for some people, and me included. I don't do a very good job of it, and I wish I could do better. Now, back to one thing you said. It's Gator's Grip Acrylic Hobby Glue, not Gator Glue. Gator Glue is something else. Yeah, no, no. You're right. Gator Grip Acrylic Hobby Glue. Not Gorilla Glue, not Gator Glue. You're right. So, i tell you, another thing I do is, uh, on, on sheets that don't have a lot of fine, really tiny pieces, I'll, I'll, sand, I'll sand the surface and dull it up. Yeah. Scratch it up real good. Uh, another thing I've I've done before is I've I've grit blasted it with uh, like a badger abrasive brass blasting gun. Mm-hmm. That's it seems like that helps paint adhesion better than it does glue adhesion, though. I will say that. Yeah. Well, if you're applying a flat part to a flat PE part to plastic, such as let's say a a surface panel or something like that, where you're you're applying it to the to the model flat. One of the best ways to do it is to use just a, a drop of future, and then you stick the PE part in the future because right. it gi- gives you the ability to move it around and get it in exactly the right position. Then you just walk away from it. The future dries. You you don't see anything but the gloss left from the future, and then you go back and hit it with the with the super glue, the very thin super glue around the edge of the panel and clean off any excess. Well, there we go. I don't know if we solved his problems or not. Cause I don't think anybody can solve the problem of photo etch because <laughs> it is not your friend. I'm sorry. Or Ian's wrong. There you go. <laughs> he does a good job at it though. Oh, he does, man. He's one of those. I don't know if, you know, he's got a, a, a little spider that he's trained to do all the folding and all something. Maybe. Well, that is it for listener mail this this episode. If you want to send your listener mail in, you can do so at uh, plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com. We love to get it and tell us where you're from. And this is the point in the podcast where I ask you to uh, take a moment. And uh, when you're done listening to the uh, podcast on whatever podcast app you listen on, if you take a moment to go in and rate us five stars, uh, helps us uh, make the podcast more visible to more people. Also, if you're listening and enjoying, tell a friend. You know, modelers tend to, to group together. So you know some other modelers who you talk with or or whatever, and they may not be listening to the podcast. One of the best ways for us to grow is a recommendation from a friend. So spread the word. We'd appreciate it. And if you like podcasts and want to listen to more scale modeling podcasts, please go to modelpodcast.com it's a consortium website we've set up with the help of Stuart clark which i'm going to take time to mention Stuart, i hope you're feeling better he went yes. public with his little health issue he had a mild heart attack uh this past week and was in the hospital is back home recovering from that now but uh, i'm sure that's a scary time and Stuart, we hope to hear you hear you improving and uh hear you back on the airwaves again real soon absolutely our thoughts are thoughts are with you man so Stu set that website up for us, and uh, again, it's uh, 
modelpodcastplural.com. So you can go there and find links to all the podcasts in the model sphere. Uh, in addition, uh, we haven't got that far with the website yet, but you can still check out our non-podcasting content friends. We've got uh, Chris Wallace out of Ottawa, Canada with uh, Model Airplane Maker. Stephen Lee, Sprue Pie with Frets here for, here in the U.S. with us. we got Jim Bates of Scale Canadian TV with his YouTube channel. Chris has a YouTube channel as well. Yes. we got uh, the Inchai guy who we hope to see here real soon. All things 72nd scale. This coming week. Oh, gosh, it is, isn't it? Yeah, man. You better oh, make wow. plans. You ought to be down here on Saturday. I, I should be. So hopefully we'll see Inchai, Mr. Jeff Groves there as well. Looking forward to talking to him about this ship rabbit hole. I'm finding myself trying to claw back out of. <laughs> I told you, man, those anatomy of a ship books are killer. Oh, I know. They're unbelievable. Did I forget anybody? Nope. I think that's it. All right. Well, that's our friends out in the model sphere. Finally, uh, if you're not a member of IPMS USA or IPMS Canada or your national IPMS chapter, such as IPMS Australia or IPMS New Zealand or IPMS UK, please consider joining. The national organization is very important to modeling. There's a lot of stuff that happens, a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes to allow the local chapters to form, to interact with each other, to not step on each other. A prime example of that is the MMCL, our local club, the Military Modelers Club of Louisville, is having its contest this coming weekend. And we don't have to worry about another nearby IPMS chapter holding a contest and stepping on our contest. That's all thanks to the national organization. So if you're not a member, please consider joining. All right, Dave, let's take a little pause here and have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Well, Dave, it's Wagons Ho for Omaha. All right. How much time do I have to finish a kit? Uh, at the time of this recording, we are 304 days away from the wagon trains leaving for Omaha, Nebraska in the 2022 National Convention. Yay. All right. Well, we'll keep it brief again. We don't want to give people a Nats overload, but uh, yeah. it is coming up. But the important date right now is October 15th, which is not that far off. No. Like three weeks. That's when the hotel window opens for room reservations in Omaha. So uh, get on ball and uh, get yourself a hotel room if you think you might be going. Yeah, because they go quickly. They go very quickly. Uh, I know the last time that Omaha held the Nationals, the rooms went completely in two days. So uh, if you're planning on going, and you should be, get your room reservation in. Uh uh, there's a wide variety of rooms from suites to uh, very simple rooms. So figure out what works best for you. Make that reservation. You camping out for us? Uh, I'll, I'll make the reservation for us. I think we want a suite if we can get it. I do too. So as many people were in our room in, yeah, in Las true. Vegas every night. We can yeah. spread out. Yeah. There was everything. Listen, in our our hotel room, every single night we were there, we had people in the hotel room. The only thing we lacked is Vegas showgirls, man. That's right. It, 
<laughs> but otherwise, we had a great time. All right. Well, that's uh, the the abbreviated update for for Omaha. We'll get more information as more information is available. Yep. Mike, uh, have you building building models? I've been modeling. <clears throat> I know. I'm. I'm. I'm I've been I've been seeing progress make me a little jealous although I'm starting to make some of my own. Well, I tell you, uh the subject matter is unchanged from last episode, but I am making progress. Still painting these ammo boxes and I got a little stymied because I I noticed that there weren't enough decals on the decal sheet from Mini Art for that set to do all the boxes for one caliber of munition. So, I was like, "Uh-oh, what am I going to do?" So, I contacted Mini Art and they they took care of me. That's I mean that's that's customer service and deserves deserves to be complimented. I uh, will have more to say on that later. Yeah, but uh, it's nice to see a manufacturer who is is res- a responsive, be willing to go above and beyond. I'm assuming they didn't charge you for this. Nope. Um, you know to 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 do something like that for. Uh, a modeler who's working with their product. So, you know, cause th- that's going to generate really good word of mouth. Well, I- I'm still chugging away on these ammo boxes and I tell you, I keep refreshing my wet palette. Um, trying to find the right combinations. I'm finding for these newer, newer boxes, new lumber. I'm having to come up with some really desaturated variations in the, the wood, you know, tan color, whatever you want to call it. How are you desaturating that color? Uh, light gray. Uh, there's a couple of other colors in the Vallejo line. Do you think you've arrived at a formula you like? Pale sand. That one doesn't have much color to it. Yeah. The the real, that part's, I'm, I'm getting down. The, the hard part is going back with the shading later and not overdoing it. Yeah. But I've got a formula that works. I've got, I've got the two, uh, I had, I had one of the closed boxes finished last episode and decaled. We talked about that. I've got the second closed box finished and satin finished. It's ready for decals and a little more wash to be applied to the latches and stuff, not the satin finishes on there. And I've got one of the, the loose lids painted. So I've got two open boxes left to do. Uh, one of them is all the, the wood shading done on it, but that's it. And the other one I haven't got to yet. It's all only base coated. We discussed last time. Are you going to do one of them in green? No. Okay. You got you. You like the wood enough, and you've put enough effort into it that you want them to show. Yep, want it to show. It's going to be going. Okay. Going to do that. Uh, another thing I've been working on is uh, it's one that's giving me fits. I've, I made a couple of test plaques on styrofoam using the same ground materials. Groundwork materials I'm going to be using on the on the base. Mm-hmm. And gosh, I've repainted these like four times each now just trying to get something i like not to name drop uncle night shift again but did you see his last episode where he makes the base for the french tank uh maybe i should go watch it i've not seen it you should but he does something that i think he even says in the last episode that it horrifies his listeners because he gets his groundwork down and it looks pretty good and then he paints all of it black <laughs> and goes back and repaints all of the groundwork again. And I mean, I can't argue with the results he gets, but God, when you, when you see him take that really nice looking base and start painting it black, it just, it, you know, your heart's in your throat. It's like, man, why are you doing that? But I can't argue with the results he gets. 
Well, I'll have to go look at that. Yeah, I've seen him do that on something else, and I don't know. I'm painting these a really, really dark brown to start out with with a brush. Yeah. We'll see. By the way, I think that makes – you and I have discussed all, uh, off air. Um, one of the things when, you, when you're when you really doing a piece like this, a diorama or vignette or whatever, the, the important thing is not as to try and maintain consistent quality throughout the piece where – the, the temptation can be to go all out on, in this case, let's say the gun and get a really nice result and then not put the same level of quality into, say, the boxes or the groundwork or whatever. And then when you look, when you put that piece down and look at it as a whole, it doesn't look right. And you're not necessarily sure you can put your finger on why it doesn't look right, but it's because the same level of effort and quality didn't go into everything. So the fact that you're putting that level of effort into those boxes and playing so much with the groundwork, I I think is going to pay dividends in the long run. Well, I hope so. And then the other side of that is, I've talked about it last time. These things have so many parts for what they are. If you do a half-baked job on them, they're going to look terrible. Yeah. So we want to avoid that at all costs. Absolutely. And finally... Uh, I've got the, I cleared off a table we have down in the basement in my workshop area and I've got the Reba Botan one-tenth scale factory drawing spread out back there and I've started uh, <laughs> fantasizing about actually building that again. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. We know you had worked in CAD and you had gotten a, a basic chassis test print. In fact, I think you'd actually done two of them. Well, I had um, two, I had two printed at a local, two copies printed at a local outsource place right and now i've printed a third one at work right what what do you think your next step would be in something like that well the next step is to go back and actually check this chassis i've got against the drawings because this chassis you had to kind of piecemeal put things together make a couple of assumptions to get to get part of it because you can't you couldn't see it in anything that i had and yeah. that that uh, that one sixteenth R radio control build that kind of pushed me over the edge on this. I mean, the guy basically says the same thing because he didn't have he didn't have that three view drawing when he made that model, and he had to make a couple of assumptions, but they weren't. Uh, you know, they were good assumptions. They ended up being right, but uh, um, I don't know if I've got the chassis rails long enough. That that's the net of it. Mm, okay. So now you're basically your next step is to go back and take your test prints and compare them to the new, not compare, new, new, but the, 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 the more detailed information that you got to see if you're, if you got it right. Yes. Okay. In both length and shape and all that. So, and the other problem is as I drew this chassis in a, in a CAD package, I don't have access to anymore. So. I've got some export file types, but I, I can't modify the construction of these these of this chassis anymore. I can add to it, but I can't change it. I can't make just the rails longer. I, I guess I could add to it and make it longer that way, but that's kind of a crappy way to do it. Uh, I may just rec- recreate the whole thing. I was going to say, you may have to ultimately end up redrawing it in the new CAD package. Right, but uh, I know, you know it won't be that much different. Yeah. That's about it. I haven't touched the uh I haven't touched the Musaru Cup build since the last episode. I probably ought to 
slam a few of those parts together yeah. over, over this week. And then uh, if I'm going to do this group build with the boys over on uh, the Plastic Posse podcast, I better, I better get cracking. <laughs> yeah, there's some fast builders in that group. I got a couple of guys are almost done. I know. Uh, maybe, maybe they'll build more than one. I was going to say, now, technically, you've got till the Nationals, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. So I got almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. Ten months at this point. Which just about, if you build it out of the box, would just about be your speed. Just about. That's about right. <laughs> well, what have you been doing? That's what I've been up to. Well, uh, hi, my name's David Knights, and I'm a hypocrite. Uh, <laughs> no, uh you know, I spent last last episode railing against uh, uh, aftermarket, and I think I had posted on on uh, the Facebook page previously that I'd gotten the Armory wheel set for the TU one twenty eight, and how let's put it this way, I didn't think that it was very good or much at all an improvement over the kit parts. Well, um, you know, so. If following my thesis, I should have probably just gone ahead and and gotten the kit parts and got those painted up and and moved on. Well, instead, I ordered the res kit photo etch wheel set for the TU one twenty eight, and it came in. I ordered it from Estonia or somewhere, uh, and it came in. And so I've spent the last day or so cleaning those up. Uh, so I plead to being a little bit of a um, not a, not completely consistent in my opinions regarding aftermarket. These look much better, and in fact, when I'm done, I'll do a side by side comparison between them, the Armory ones, and the ones from the kit. Um, so the TU one twenty eight is moving forward. The fuselage is actually all together. The wings have not been mated, uh, but and the canopy, of course, ha- canopies haven't been put on. Uh, but it emphasizes what a big sucker this thing is. It is, it is well longer than my forearm, uh, from the joint of the elbow to the tip of my index finger or uh, second finger. So uh, it's a big kit. It's going to be. It's going to be big. It's going to take a lot of metalizer to cover this sucker. <laughs> Well, you know, at least you're copping to the hypocrite thing, but I, I don't think, I think I'll give you a pass because we, we did kind of emphasize uh, worthwhile aftermarket and, and, yes. and less so aftermarket. Yeah. So yeah. We weren't paying the whole concept. Just No, to, absolutely not. You're right. Just, just you got to be careful. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you've got to be judicious in deciding what to do and what, what to leave alone. Um, on my mosquito that should have been done for the nationals, but wasn't, uh, I've started masking it so I can put the green over the gray on the, on the top camouflage. And, uh, uh, I'm actually ready to start spraying that. And if I didn't have to work on tax stuff and some trial prep stuff that, uh, uh, I've got coming up, I'd probably be putting paint on it tonight after we recorded. So I don't think that's going to happen, but those two are still moving forward. The M30 is still sitting exactly where it is. And I promise I'm going to get back to that too. I've screwed my courage up enough to start chipping, but I've got to clear these other things a little bit. And uh, again, I hope that's done 
before the end of the year. Because right now I've only finished one model this year and there is no way I shouldn't have at least three finished, possibly four by the end of the year. So we'll see. Well, I hope you do. Me too, man. Me too. Uh, Mike, uh, have you been purchasing things post-Nationals? Yes, I have. I know you have. What what have you been buying? A lot. I know. Tell me about it. Well, back to the group build. Uh, since I bought that Firefly, bought that a long time ago. I think I might have got it at Brian's. Yeah, I think you did. Uh, the, the vehicle I want to do was the uh, Alakafik from... Uh, it was a vehicle abandoned on... on uh, at Villers Bocage, it's uh, right. I'm trying to think of the union or the unit. It's the the one that got the through and through on the side, right? No, it's got an impact on the mantlet from a, a mantlet seventy five or maybe an eighty eight anti tank round. But uh, the Germans were trying to start it the, 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 from all the camera reels. There, there's a lot of still photos of this vehicle when they're trying to get it started again. Anyway, there's a. A star decals decal set of uh, British armor in Normandy that has that vehicle on it. I love that. De- I love stars de- star decals. Well, they make some interesting sets. They do. I hope they respond well. They seem like they might be a little thick, but we'll see. Anyway, that was from BNA Model World out of Australia, so I wasn't just going to get a decal sheet from Australia. <laughs> That's that is the problem. Anytime you order from like Hannitz or BNA or you know Hobby Link Japan or whatever, you can't just buy the one thing that you really want. Well, I got uh, an Edward PE set back to aftermarket for uh, Arado one ninety six in seventy second scale. Okay, and I got. A set of uh, armaments from uh, Master Reality and Miniature, Master Model out of Poland. Uh, hmm. Armament, they're gun barrels, MG15, MG17. Gotcha. Those are really nice, but those are 30-second scale. Okay. Uh, what else did I get? That all came fairly quickly. Then I got on eBay. <laughs> it's always a mistake, man. Yeah. I got some... Uh, Decals from Cora for Arado 196 and 72nd scale, specifically for the Scharnhorst. Oh, okay. Aircraft. Uh, just to try them, uh, I got a set of uh, camouflage masks for the hard edge, you know, the right. games for the Arado splinter. 196. Yeah, the splinter. And I got Quick Boost uh, Arado 196 uh, exhausts, 72nd scale, which are just about for every kit because. None of the kits have the exhaust, except maybe the the sword kit may. It probably yeah. does. It's such much a better kit. And uh, it's for the Heller Ravel, you know, the old kit. Yeah. Uh, and I got the propeller and spinner because the one in the kit sucks. <laughs> you got a lot of aftermarket. I did. And I also got the cowling, which is a big improvement for that old Heller kit. But I won't mention the seller because we've rectified the situation. Sent it all in a padded envelope. Ah. Uh-uh. So the cowling got smashed. Yeah. So I'll have to get another one of those. Yeah. Oh, speaking of that, there's that's another reason for you to um, uh, go to, when you're in D.C., to go to Udvar Hazy. There's 
an intact Arado 196 still in the original paint. I forget which German ship it came off of, but it is it is still I don't I don't think they've restored it yet or done anything to restore it, but when I saw it, it was in the wings were off of it. It was in the the restoration facility, which has all now generally been moved over to Udvar Hazy, and it ha- it still had the original two tone German two tone green splinter camo on it. Very impressive to see. So if you can find any time to get over there and get a chance to see that, it would be well worth it, given what you're considering doing. Well, I also bought two books. Uh-huh. I highly recommend both of them if you're into ships or ship armament or whatever. Yeah. Uh, one is the same book I borrowed from uh, Jeff Groves, Inch High Guy. The man who got you hooked. The man who got me hooked, the uh, German, or sorry, the Japanese heavy cruiser Takeo. Yeah. These anatomy of a ship books are something else. Yes, they are. And there is a, a huge line of them. You don't realize how many of those Anatomy of a Ship books there are out there. And this one I primarily got for the information about all the fittings around the 25 millimeter and aircraft guns, the singles, the doubles, and the triples. Yeah. And the ammo lockers and all that. So I bought a whole book for that. but <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, because eventually you're going to need the catapult stuff to do the yes. Takao's catapult uh and and aircraft i will and it's got some nice catapult drawings they're kind of they're, they're earlier catapults than you can get on the market right now but um it has all the the trolleys they use to port the aircraft on the deck of the ship and it's almost like a little railroad on, on, the, yes. on the top of the ship right yep that's the way they did it and the other one's a newer one this book's kind of this book was an older book uh the other one is anatomy of the ship now that uh, osprey has picked up this this uh, series it's on the Sharn horse. Oh, did Osprey pick up the series? I didn't realize they had yeah, picked all up the that newer one. ones are Osprey publishing. There's, there's still the kind of square format, right? Uh, hardbound books and man, they've, they've elevated the books to a new level. I think, cause there's not only is there the line drawings of all the fittings, but they usually have a, a colorized 3d render as well. Yeah. And it goes into great detail just like the other one, but it's a lot bigger book. Those those things, and you know what? If you keep an eye out, like on, if you'll do a a search for them on eBay and uh, uh, just on the internet generally, every once in a while you'll find those things that somebody's blowing out somewhere. You can really pick up some deals, and all of those books are worth having if you have any sort of interest in that area. Well, there's a lot of them at this point. Yes, there are tons of them. Well. My wallet's dead. Okay. <laughs> well, you better get back to work and recharge it. I think so. And you? You've been sitting well, back there all smug, not buying anything. No, no, no. I have been. I have been buying some of it's your fault. Um, uh, you discovered that Japanese website with those TKS tracks, the individual track links for the TKS tracks, um, and pointed me to it, and I went ahead and ordered a set of those and those are somewhere between Japan and the US. Uh I ordered the res kit wheels uh for the TU128 that just arrived uh from Estonia. 
And then uh, I think I discussed last last episode, my Badger 150 died. Even though I have three other airbrushes, I really, I really feel the need to have the Badger 150. Uh, it's the brush I'm most used to. It's the one I'm most comfortable with. And it's a great general duty brush. So I went ahead, went on eBay and, and bought a used one. Uh, and in theory, it should be here tomorrow. All right. So I've been spending a little money, maybe not as much as you. But, yeah, I need to take a break, man. But I've been spending. <laughs> yeah. I need to actually build some of this stuff I'm buying. Of course, if, you know what? Take a break isn't a great thing with our show coming up this weekend, man. Because you got to find something, something there that you need. I maybe should bring a bunch of stuff to sell is what I should do. Well, we've got a table. You can bring I'm going to have some stuff. So, All right. Well, if our wallets are broken, we can get on our special segment tonight. Sounds good. Now, this is this is an area of, of voodoo magic kind of uh, along the lines of being able to do photo etch well. Yes, the segment is titled A Sterling Sterling. It is a conversation with modeler Scott Lords out of... Uh, Idaho Falls, Idaho, and uh, he built an absolutely jaw-dropping British short sterling in 148 scale, and I think that was the Sanger kit he based yes. that off of. And yes. uh, it's uh, what some of us call the next level build. Yep. Really, really impressive, and uh, we'll let Scott talk about his model. So let's have a listen to that. Well, Dave, our uh, Consider Us Impressed tickets, we Dropped down at the show in Las Vegas, uh, paid off. And uh, tonight we've got a special guest who built that absolutely sterling, short sterling, I'll say that. Uh, Mr. Scott Lords from Idaho Falls, Idaho, the builder of that aircraft, has joined us tonight to talk about that build. Scott, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Mike. Uh, Dave, I appreciate the invitation to come on with you. It was a lot of fun to do the project. Well, no problem. Um, I got to say, it was a uh, along the aircraft aisle there. It was a it was a favorite among a lot of the attendees, and it got a lot of attention. Just I think probably because it's a big plane, and it's just a you know the fact that it was a based on a vacuform kit uh, really really impressed a lot of people, and they should have been impressed because you 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 ought to be proud of it. It's a absolutely fabulous build, and I'm sure there's a lot of. Uh, technical hurdles you had to overcome but uh we had a little uh conversations over email prior to coming on here and you've we've got a few areas we'd like to talk about that kit but uh mm -hmm. um i'll start by just asking you uh about your modeling history a little bit briefly and then we'll get into your build so sure. uh how'd you get into this um well i have been modeling uh pretty much all my life um from listening to your previous podcast, uh, I'm guessing that we are about the same age. And Maybe. within, with the exception of just a year or two here or there, I've been pretty consistent at modeling. It's just been something that I've enjoyed doing. My main focus, my main interests have always been uh, 148 scale aircraft and primarily from World War II. I've done some World War I subjects before. Uh, I've meddled around a little bit in some armor. And then a few Cold War jets, which I'd love to do more of. But World War II quarter scale has been kind of my, my go-to thing. And with this particular build, this Sterling, 
Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed doing with my modeling, and I did my first one a number of years ago, was to paint my own nose art. And it was on a P-47. And it was just it, this particular P-47 captured my attention. And I thought, that is a really cool nose art. And this was before the day of where I even thought of aftermarket decals or anything like that. And I decided I'm going to try this. And it turned out really well. And I had a ton of fun doing it. And since then, that was probably a good uh, maybe 20 years ago. And since then, I've just really enjoyed hand painting nose arts on a lot of different subjects. And I was scrolling through some information. This is three or four years ago. And I came across the nose art for the one that I put on this Sterling, which is the Gremlin teaser. And I in it instantly grabbed my attention. And I thought, I've always wanted to do a Sterling, but obviously there's no kits of it except this this vacuum form. And when I started the build, uh, or when I started thinking about the possibilities of doing one, I didn't even know if there was a, a vacuum form kit out there. But anyway, the nose art really grabbed my attention. And I started digging through information. Is there a kit available of a quarter scale Sterling? And that's when I came across the Sanger vacuum form and I kind of sized it up. I started going through reference material. Do I have enough reference that I could maybe do a reasonable job on a model like this? And I thought of what are my resources and it just all kind of started to click. And I got really excited about doing it. And I ordered the kit from the UK and it showed up and I dove in. And four years later, I finally finished. <laughs> Scott? And yes, Dave. I, I cannot believe this, but this was your first vacuform kit ever? Yes, it is. It's the only vacuform kit I've ever done. What did you what did you think when you ordered that kit from the UK and it showed up on your doorstep and you opened <laughs> that box and saw five or six sheets of wavy white plastic with kind of the impression of parts of a sterling molded into it? Well, I kind of I knew a little bit about what to expect because of just seeing it online. And pictures and a few reviews uh, from some guys that had tried tackling it before. So I kind of had an idea what to expect, but it it was rough. When Key I got word, it, the, tried. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I got it and started looking through it, I immediately knew most of at least the detail stuff that they gave me was going to be unusable. Um, they gave me uh, white metal landing gear. Some of the cockpit detail was white metal. The engines were with the propellers. And they were just horribly rough. And I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to use any of it. And I didn't. Uh, I used... I, so I, what I did is I ransacked uh, a Tamiya Lancaster kit and two Bristol Bullfighter kits. That ain't cheap. <laughs> <laughs> no, Dave, it's not. And when I started into it, I kind of allowed myself, I don't spend a lot of money on other hobbies. And I've really been proud of myself in the last couple of years that I've, I've not broken my wallet on much <laughs> of anything. So I just decided <laughs> I'm going to let myself do this. And 
I just kept the mindset of it's just like building the Lancaster, only you're not building the whole thing. It's just like <laughs> building a bowfighter, but you're not building the whole thing. And it, it just worked for me. Well, I, I get that. I, I've got a, a, a Russian Katusha ro- launcher I'm, I'm sizing up to build now. And, and Dave and I were online a few nights ago. And uh, I sat here while we were talking on the phone. I parted out uh, four kits and throw through through the usable stuff that I wanted to use into a box. And that's my kit for building this. So I can c- completely relate to yes. scabbing off other kits to to get, get what you need. And it's funny because I've built... No, I'm not, I'm an armor modeler mostly. That's changed a little bit here in the last year or so. But um, I've actually built probably three vacuform armor kits that were kind of out in the late '80s, early '90s. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered why why don't they just give us the decent shapes and not throw any of that other white metal crap in? Because it's almost always unusable, and it's it's just makes more sense from a technical standpoint to just get the basic shapes right. And then let, let the modeler go from there. And it seems like that's what you've done. That, yeah. That's exactly what I did with this. Now, Scott, you talked to, you mentioned the landing gear. The first thing you looked at white metal landing gear, there's no way I can use this. If anybody who's familiar with the Sterling, the landing gear is such a big part of the model because it's stalky it's, uh, you know, the, the aircraft sits very high. It has very long, leggy landing gear. And you realized that the white metal was going to be unusual. How did you how did you plan and tackle the coming up with building two mirror image landing gears for the kit? And let me add one more point to that before you get going. I suspect you started with the landing gear because they are unique. The white metal was just not going to cut it. And if you couldn't build the landing gear, it probably wasn't worth continuing on the build. Is that true at all? Mike, that is 100% accurate. That is exactly where I was coming from when I started it. Because my thought was, um, if, if I can't get the landing gear right, and if I can't get it perpendicular in relation to the dihedral of the wings... If that's not even going to be straight on, why bother doing any of the rest of it? So yes, that's exactly uh, was exactly my thinking when I started it. And what I did, um, the first thing I did obviously was to cut out the wings and the fuselage halves from uh, the big sheets, sanded them down, taped them together, did a few other things, and then I had to figure out how am I going to mate the wings to the fuselage and give them some kind of reasonable strength, which I did with uh, some brass tubing that went through the fuselage halves and out into the wings. And so I, I messed with that initially to kind of get that right. And when I was confident that the bottom half of the wings um, were going to be mated with the fuselage in a reasonable way, then I started into the landing gear. And the very first thing that I actually glued together were the halves, the uh, halves of the tires. You used the vacuform tires. I I did. I didn't have any other option because the Sterling tires are bigger than the Lancaster tires. Oh, I didn't it, realize that. Yeah, scale wise, probably a quarter of an inch taller than the Lancaster wheels were. So I couldn't use the Lancaster wheels, but I did use the Lancaster hubs. So what I did is I cut the plastic hubs out of the Lancaster tires and then 
used those hubs in the kit's vacuum-formed rubber tire part. That's smart. That's, yeah, and that, that's, really that's where smart. I started. And then from there, uh, I just started – I built the landing gear out of brass tubing, most of it, soldered brass tubing. And it was a challenge. I'm here to tell you. <laughs> it It was a ton of fun. I am assuming that you decided very quickly to go with brass as opposed to to styrene rod or anything else simply because the weight factor has to be taken into account. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yep. I was concerned if I tried styrene tubing, which would have been easier, obviously, during the building process, but I was worried that it wouldn't support the weight, and I didn't want it sagging or anything like that. Now... How many sets of landing gear did you have to build before you were satisfied? Were you able to do it in just one left and one right? Or did you do one, get halfway through and go, nope, I got to go back to square one and do it again? Or how did that go? Dave, I'm to be honest with you, I don't remember for sure. Um, I don't remember having a terrible amount of trouble if I had to guess, I would say that I got them right pretty much the first shot. Now, there was a few things I had to maybe do again during the building process, but for the most part, it worked pretty well. I used I, I built some balsa wood uh, jigs that I could use for the soldering process so I uh, could get the landing gear almost identical. I built one and then the other using the same jig. And... Um, what was the biggest challenge was how am I going to get these brass landing gears that have four connecting points? There's two uh, on the front, straight up above the tire, and then two that work their way back towards the flaps. Right. How am I going to get those four connecting points perfectly perpendicular when they're glued into the wing, which has a slight angle up for the dihedral? and to explain that whole process to you would take the entire time that we have here <laughs> tonight. So I won't give you a ton of detail on that. But what I wound up doing was building what I called cradles that were built out of eight inch styrene blocks. Mm-hmm. And I drilled the four locating holes in those cradles and then glued the cradle into the bottom half of the wings and got those perfectly straight before I glued them in. And then I cut most of the cradles out and just left the locating uh, holes there. So after all the wings were sealed up and everything's painted and I, I'm ready to glue the landing gear in, I just popped them right up into those four lake locating pins and it worked. It was awesome. How much of, the, of, of everything that came in the box from Sanger, how much would you say you actually used? Um, I used, uh, obviously, the four wing halves, the fuselage halves, the wheel, well, the tires like we just talked about. Right. And then the stabilizers on the back end. And that is it. So you didn't use the canopy or the tail? No. The canopy, uh, oh my goodness. The canopy that Sanger gives you, is it was about a quarter of an inch too narrow. Oh so my when gosh. I, yeah, when I put the fuselage halves together and I was really careful as I was sanding it down 
to try and get it exactly to scale width, which if I remember right, is almost exactly six feet for the Sterling. Right. Um, have making sure that the fuselage halves were to scale the canopy that they gave me was no less than a quarter of an inch too narrow so it was unusable i didn't use any of the clear parts that sanger gave me i didn't use the turrets i didn't use any of it so when when you put the canopy on and realized it was a quarter inch too thin is that the point at which you started drinking heavily because yes. I would have. <laughs> <laughs> well, the drinking actually started when I was getting into that soldering all that brass together and having to move heat sink clips around because when, when you solder one joint, when you move to the next one, you don't want it to get too hot because it melts the previous joint. Right. Oh. <laughs> but, yeah, um, the way I worked around the canopy, the way I formed that, um, once I got the fuselage halves to the point where okay, they're the right width and I'm ready to use them. I taped them together and built a little box around the canopy area and then filled it with plaster, uh, plaster of Paris. And that solidified. And then I just started carving my mold and it, it took, it took a couple days of work and sanding and the plaster is actually pretty easy uh, for the first couple of days after it sets, it's pretty right. easy to carve. And so just the carving process, and I kept carving and shaping and refitting it and back and forth and back and forth. And the plaster, it it, it worked great, but my first attempt at vacuum forming around it told me that any of the little pits or air bubbles, no matter how small, would right. actually show up in my vacuum formed canopy so what i had to do is i i went back with just a bunch of mr surfacer and primer and yeah, just sealed it layered it and layered it and sealed it in really good and it, it was more complicated than that i ran into some other snags but just in the interest of time here it it, it worked and finally i got to the point where i was able to get my my canopy and then the bombardier nose part uh, the bombardier's window I vacuumed that. The front nose uh, turret, I had to vacuum that as well. And the canopy and the bombardier's window, I vacuumed quite a bit bigger than would actually be seen on the model. And that gave me some wiggle room to you come back in with filler and fill in all those seams and everything that that created and sand it out and everything. Uh, and then I just masked over the clear parts that I needed to mask, painted it, and when I'm done painting, I unmask it, and you can't see, you can't see any of the canopy, uh, mold, not mold lines, but the seam lines. Yeah. Same with the uh, the navigators, or I'm sorry, the bombardiers window. I really impressed myself with that. I've got to, I've got to admit it. <laughs> Because <laughs> I was really worried that that wasn't going to look very good. But like everything else on the model, or most everything, it just worked. When I got done with it, I thought that was a good idea. That worked, and I kept going. Well, what kind of equipment are you vacuuming these on? <laughs> a scratch-built vacuform attachment. I, I, What I did is I took a plastic, a clear pa- plastic box, kind of like a Tupperware box, 
and I had an old stereo out in the garage that didn't work for years. It was actually scheduled to go into the trash can and it had a speaker plate across it that was made out of steel. So it had a bunch of holes in it. And I cut that out and uh, replaced the top of my clear box with this steel speaker platent. And that was my vacuform surface. And then I cut a round hole into the side of my little clear box for the vacuum hose to go in, set the set my mold on top of the speaker platent and turned it on and sucked it down and it worked. What was your heat source for that? My stovetop burner. Oh, so so you didn't have a thing where you like on a Maddie Mattel or uh, a dental vacuum machine where you had the heat source right there and then you just either flipped it or or brought it down on the on the mold. You actually heated it over and kind of almost plunge molded it, but with yep. the vacuum form. Man, how many yep, how many how many pulls to get a good good piece? Uh, that took me a while, probably uh, uh, ten, maybe a dozen, before I got one that I thought, okay, that one's going to work because it didn't have any wrinkles or creases across the parts of the the canopy that I knew would be seen and visible. It just took a little bit of practice, uh, but the apparatus that I made. It actually worked really pretty good. The box was maybe eight inches by eight, eight inches or so. And I plunge molded it right over top, just like you said. I I took a couple pieces of wood and cut the centers out. And that's what I put my plastic in that I was going to use as, uh, for my stock. And then screwed it down tight. Just set it over the oven burner and got it to sag nice and deep. And once I was ready to go, just set it over there, turned on the vacuum, and boom, there it was. That was another thing that I did early, fairly early on in the build with the thinking of if I can't get this canopy right, there's no point in doing going any further. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I was going to ask you what you used to master the uh, the front turret. So that I dug out, I've got Trumpeter's uh, Wellington in 148 scale, and I pulled it out to look at its front turret. The Lancaster turret for the front is quite a bit different than the Sterling turret. The rear turrets are very similar, if not identical, and same with the top, the mid-top turret. And those I used out of the Tamiya kit. But the front one, I took uh, Trumpeter's Wellington and took a good look at its front turret. And I would have used it if it was perfect, but it wasn't. So what I did is I used it as a kind of a... um, a mold and I poured just a little bit of plaster into that, let it set up and was able to pop it out. And then I used that um, plaster mold to cast a resin copy of it. This is really kind of hard to explain because uh, I needed it. I needed the mold to be just a little bit longer, the master I should say, than the Wellington turret gave me. So I had to add on about a, oh, maybe a quarter inch of more stock to the rear end of, of my master. And so I poured a resin master of that and just added onto that. And that's what I used to vacuum form the, the front turret. The barrels are, are master air, master air. They make yeah. a whole slew of different brass uh, goodies and they're really good. Uh, they're the 30 caliber machine guns were, were those and, uh, 
yeah, they turned out really, really nice. Did you have a set of plans blown up to 48 scale to work with when you were doing this or were you working just completely from the kit that you, that you had the Sanger kit basically for outline and shape and all. So the Sanger kit actually provides 48 scale drawings, three view drawings for the kit, which was really, really helpful in some cases but not very helpful in others. So what I did is I bought a Itilleries, uh 172nd scale Sterling. Yep. And I broke out the parts and I left them all on the trees. But what I did is I put them on my copier machine and blew, blew them up. I can't remember what the percentage is. There's a certain formula you can use yeah. to reduce or blow up plans for your scale. And yeah. I just set that uh, percent to blow them to 48 scale. And those measurements were immensely helpful, especially for cockpit, uh, the seats, the landing gear. That was really helpful to be able to know how long I needed to make the landing gear. Because when you look at pictures of the Sterling, all you see is that massive nose sticking miles in the air. Yeah, And knowing exactly how long they were, or should be, I, I didn't have a clue. So using the 72nd scale kit and blowing those up, I, I use those measurements primarily for, for my landing gear. And I think a few other places throughout the model. Most of my reference, um, I, I've got two books here, uh, the, Sir, the Sterling Story by Michael Boyer and the Short Sterling by Pino Lombardi. And they've got enough pictures in there combined with what I could find online, just going through gobs and gobs of reference online, I was able to piece pretty much everything that I needed to, to get a satisfactory build. It's not all perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And there were a lot of things I had to guess on, but I'm happy with the result. It's beautiful. Well, let's talk about uh, the engines and the nacelles and air intakes that you, uh, you kind of cabbaged from the Tamiya Bowfighter. Mm-hmm. How'd that work out? And what were your thoughts along that line? Okay. Um, When I started the project, my intent, because I didn't want to ruin a perfectly good bullfighter kit. I've got plans in mind for my bullfighters. (laughs) So I didn't want to lose the kit. So for my first attempt, this is the first time I've ever done this, I decided to make RTV molds of the engines, the nacelles, and the air intakes. And so I went to our local hobby, hobby lobby. We don't even have any good hobby shops in Idle Falls. It's, it's very frustrating. But I went to our local hobby lobby, got some of the RTV molding stuff, came home and went to work on it. And I was very happy with the molds that I got. And then I just used the two part resin and started pouring my, uh, pouring the resin into the molds. And when they came out, I noticed that there was quite a bit of pitting, I guess, on the surface of the nacelles. And I think what happened is I didn't get all the air bubbles out of my uh, my RTV mold, and it was picking that up in the resin. And so I had to make a decision. Do I use them anyway? Because uh, I could have used a lot of primer, Mr. Surfacer, that type of thing and sanded them down and refilled them, but I was afraid I'd destroy a lot of my detail on them. 
And so I kind of took a deep breath and said, I'm just going to get a second kit and I'm just going to use the Bowfighter kit and A-cells and engines. And I'm really glad that I did. So had, had you ever resin cast before? No. Okay. So this project, it's your first vacuform and your first attempt at resin casting. And my first attempt at vacuum forming. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Dave, you got to understand, maybe you're starting to understand why this took me four years. Well, you and Mike are very similar in this regard, where you take parts and then it's like, okay, how am I going to make this look like what it's supposed to look like? And the heck with whatever challenges lay in front of me, I'm just going to try and I'll find the answer somehow. Yes. And when I started the project, I I went to, went into it with that mindset. Yeah. I'll figure it out and, as I go. I was confident enough in what I already knew how to do that I thought I can make this work. And if I can't, I'll, I'll figure it out. And that'll be kind of the fun part of doing this project. Yeah, Mike says that's the fun part. Well, I, I can relate to that. And I got to ask, when when you're progressing through this kind of build and you get to a a wall, for me, the project comes to a stop until I figure that out. And, and I pretty much invest everything into figure, figuring that out. I don't go work on some other thing on the side. I pretty much just concentrate on, on getting over the hurdle because it's fun. What about you, yes. Scott? Yes, I totally agree with that. The problem with it is it, if you don't control it, it can easily burn you out. I'm sure you've, you felt that oh, yeah. before of you get to the frustration point. Maybe of, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got to put this thing aside. And when I started <laughs> the project, I, I made myself a promise that if I started to feel that I would allow myself to put it away and not just set it aside, but I would box it up and put it back on my shelf and I'd go build something else. I built two uh, Hawker Hurricanes in the four years that I've done this and two German tanks in those same four years at points where I just said, okay, I'm done. I can feel myself losing my mojo, so I'm just going to put it away because I don't want to rush it and get it done and then be hap- unhappy with my results. Oh, yeah. So I just let myself put it away and do another project and then come back to it. And it, that process worked really well for me, too. Another thing I found myself doing was if I got frustrated on one thing or got tired of it, I would go work on something else on this same kit. I did the the turrets that way. I did the cockpit that way, the engines. I just kind of did those in stages. When I got tired of one thing, put that aside for a couple weeks work on something totally different, but on the same kit, because it all obviously had to be done at some point. Now, I'm I'm a huge uh, Sterling fan. Uh, I always have been. I have no idea. It's Maybe it's the stocky landing gear. Maybe it's the stubby wings, but whatever. I really like that aircraft. What was wrong with the tail that you didn't use the tail? So the fuselage halves, when I uh, cut them out of the big sheets... And started messing around with them to see what I've got and how far do I need to sand them down to get them the right width. Um, 
I discovered very quickly, I thought, man, some of this just doesn't look right. And I wasn't sure what it was. And I just kept looking at it and messing with it and going back to my references. And I realized that the, the very, where the tail turret actually goes was way too square. The fuselage is kind of boxy, just the way it was designed, but not completely square, almost like I felt like Sanger was giving me. And I noticed that in the very tail where the turret goes and in the nose where the canopy goes, it was just way too square. And so what I had to do, um, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to tackle that at first, but I just decided have faith in yourself. You'll figure it out when you get to there. And when I figured it out was when I was working on trying to resin cast the engines. I noticed that I had some leftover resin every time I molded some engines or some of the parts of the engines. And I thought, how can I use, can I use this resin to backfill the fuselage halves where those misshapen parts are so I can then sand through them? And that's what I did. So in other words, um, I poured some resin in those areas of the fuselage on the inside of it that were really misshapen, let it cure for a couple of days, and then I could come back and sand through the kit plastic directly into the resin and get my shape that I needed. Gotcha. And that worked really well. I was a little worried whether or not the resin would bond to the plastic, and so I took... I think 150 sandpaper and really roughed up the interior, hoping that the resin would bond to it a little stronger. And for the most part, that worked just fine. When it came time to to really start sanding the shape of the outside, it started, my plastic started to delaminate from the resin a little bit. You think that was due to the heat that the that the resin generates as it cures? It could have been. I really don't know for sure what caused my problem there, uh, but I just took some super thin super glue and ran it down where it had started to delaminate and solved the problem. Able to come back in and I, I'm telling you, I to do my initial shaping, I was using a rasp file. Wow, <laughs> that's how that's, that's how school. much work I had to go through to get my my correct shape there's part of me that thinks i would have been better off just scratch building the whole thing yeah but i i wasn't quite ready to to go that far (laughs) here's an interesting side note about things being wrong with this kit and this one almost derailed the whole the whole build for me when i got the the wings separated from the sheets and started sanding them down and started to try and mate the nacelles to the wing halves. I discovered that Sanger molded the wings upside down. And so what I mean by that is the, the flatter half of the flatter side of the wing is supposed to right. go on the bottom. And then the rounded part of the wing is on top. Just basic aerodynamics. Right. Sanger flipped those. And the way they had it, I, I couldn't fix it. I, I couldn't just say, well, I'll just swap them and flop the right wing to the left side and vice versa. And the reasons for that are multitude. And so I really considered, oh, I'm done. 
because I can't get through this problem. And so what I did is I just left it. I just did it yeah. the way it is. So it's incorrect, but I'm, I'm guessing not a single soul who has looked at this model would be able to tell. I certainly didn't notice it when I looked at it. <laughs> so for my fellow modelers out there, <laughs> sometimes you can, you can fool people. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> well, there's a lot to take in without noticing the nuances of the airfoil shape. Yeah. <laughs> now, I I will admit to you, okay, when I saw this model and I looked at it two and three times at the Nationals in Las Vegas, and, and I looked pretty closely at it, I will tell you that I did not realize the level of detail you put into the interior of the of the model until Mike posted those photographs on Facebook. I did not realize that, I mean, you could see a fair, because of the a greenhouse canopy of the Sterling, you could see a fair amount into at least the, the forward part of the cockpit and the, and the instrument panel. But there's a whole lot more detail in there than than anybody can see by looking at the model externally. How did you decide what level of detail to put into the interior? And do you think you went too far or not far enough or what? I'm I think I did it about right. I detailed it as much as I reasonably could without totally driving myself crazy. And I knew that once I buttoned everything up, that a lot of it would be lost, even with the greenhouse canopy. I toyed with the ideas of leaving the pilot and the co-pilot windows just completely off because I opened that up and slid those windows back. Right. And I thought about just leaving them off. And I thought, no, I can't do that. I've got to finish the model. Because if with those windows open, you can see a little bit more in there. Sure. Um. But the build and doing it and the challenge of it all, I would say, was worth the time, even though a lot of it's hidden. Because I can always go back and look at those pictures and say, wow, that's cool. Because <laughs> I do. Um, it, mo- it most certainly is cool. Yeah. One other thing that I did, uh, and I don't know if you noticed this when you were looking at it at Nationals, the tail turret is removable. It's not glued in. And right behind the turret, I have a battery, a watch battery connector that runs power to two LEDs. There's an LED behind the uh, the back bulkhead that lights up the engineer's instrument panel. And if you look closely, you can see it. You can see I'm, the light on and you can see that lit up back behind I'll, I'll send you some pictures, Dave. I, I was I was going to bring this up. I had no clue that you had had lit lighted. I don't got whatever. I did not realize you had done any lighting in the model, and I mean that's just that's that's next level. To go ahead and, you know, it wouldn't be bad. It's bad enough that you start with six speed sheets of wavy white plastic and it's your first vacuform and your first vacuform canopy and your first resin cast. And then you decide, 
eh, what the heck, I'm going to run some batteries and, and LED lights in there and light it. I mean, that's just, that's next level crazy. <laughs> and, and by the way, Dave, that's another first for me on this. It's the first time I've run power. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. You know what you remind me of, Scott? Is those fantastic 16 or 18-year-old modelers who do just absolutely insane work because nobody ever told them they're not supposed to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for that compliment. I'll take that as a compliment. It, it, it was a very much a compliment. Well, to, to light that cockpit area and, and the, uh, the bomber station, you, you had to build all that to even be able to light it. And man, there's a lot of plastic in there. What was that like? Uh, like everything else, it was very tedious and time consuming. but. Also, it's one of the reasons I, I built this model. When I, was, when I was first considering, should I even do this? Is it even possible? Is there even a kit? Is I kept looking at all the detailed photos of these cockpits and stuff and the radio operator's compartment and the navigator's spot, I just thought, this just oozes fun to build. And I've done quite a bit of scratch building before and that's one of the reasons why i felt confident if i can get these other things done i'm the cockpit's going to be a piece of cake relatively speaking to the rest of the build it'll take me forever but i knew i could do it and it was just a matter of patience i don't know how else to say it and just working through it just methodical i'm a school teacher so i have summers off for the most part and I did most of the cockpit and radio compartments last summer. I don't know what else to say about all that scratch building. I, I, there were times I'd come to to parts of it, like building the seats. Uh, I came across on Facebook as I was doing internet searches for reference material and that sort of thing. There's a group in the UK called the Sterling Project, and they are building a replica of a Sterling cockpit with the seats, the throttle quadrants, the instrument panel, the whole 10 yards. I mean, it yep. is impressive. And I just saw a post of theirs on Facebook a uh, couple weeks ago, and they are starting to cut out of aluminum all the ribbings for the bomb bays. And I don't know what their ultimate goal is. I don't know how far they're going to take this thing. But when I came across their pictures on Facebook, those were invaluable. And I thought, this is going to be a lot of fun. I, I know I can build these seats. I know I can build that throttle quadrant. I can do this. <laughs> and it was just fun to do. Yeah, there's no existent Sterling left. No, there are not. Which is amazing when you consider the number of them that were built and, and uh, the various uses they were put to. All right. Well, I, I want to ask you about uh, hand painting nose art. Do you do you paint that on decal film, or do you uh, do you go right to the model or something else? And then, uh, what about the nose art on this aircraft made you want to do do this particular Sterling? So I've done, like I said uh, earlier, I've done a number of nose arts on some other models. I've got a C forty seven that I that I did, uh, B-17, P-47. I have one of my modeling buddies here in Idle Falls who's an awesome modeler. He's built some 
Vizal models and asked me to do the nose arts on those, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. And so when I was scrolling through pictures three, four years ago and came across this particular Sterling, I thought that would be a really fun nose art to do. I don't know what it was about it that grabbed me. And I didn't really know any of the history. In fact, I knew nothing of the history of the Gremlin teaser, which is what this one is called. But I just like the nose art. And it's not too extravagant. It's not too complicated. And I I felt confident that I can put that on, on this aircraft. And so my process of doing it is usually I'll spray either a white or a flesh colored if it's kind of, if it's got a, a a lady scantily clad there on the nose I'll start with a flesh color and I'll just airbrush that as a base coat and then I'll uh, Xerox copy a copy of the nose art that I want to do and cut it out with my exacto knife on frisket and then that frisket I'll just put that frisket right up there and then I'll spray the rest of the model its colors and then i peel that frisket off and there's my palette or there's my canvas i should say and just taking a couple nice high quality brushes i just start painting it in there do you paint in acrylics or or oils or enamels what these are all enamels this is the last model that i've done with enamels and I've finally taken the leap into acrylics. And I've wondered what acrylics would be like to use in doing these nose art projects. I think they'd actually be okay with a little bit of the airbrush flow improver. I think mm-hmm. is what it's called. It's the retardant yeah. that slows the drying time. Right. And, and I think if I use that, it might actually work pretty good. I've actually tried a little bit of doing that with the acrylic. And I think it would work. I haven't done a full on nose art yet with it, but I think it would work in acrylic. It's not perfect. You get up close and you can kind of see the brush marks, but I try and uh, put heavy coats of gloss coat across it just to try and fill in some of those brush marks before I do the the final uh, semi-flat coat. Mm-hmm. It's just been, it's just been fun. And I'll tell you a little bit more about this particular Gremlin teaser. I've gotten to the point, I've got so many models and everything, I'm never going to build them all. And I've, deci- <laughs> I've decided I gotta, I've got to narrow my focus. And what I've kind of narrowed it down to is I want to build aircraft that have a D-Day connection or that have a Battle of Britain connection or a Cuban Missile Crisis connection. That's kind of a side (laughs) note. (laughs) But this, uh, I was well into doing this Gremlin teaser, not knowing anything about it. And I came across it almost by accident in one of my reference books. I was looking for something else. And I came across just a little bit of the story behind it. And the Gremlin teaser was actually used to fly what were known as Mandrel missions on the night before D-Day. And without getting into the complex details of that, these Sterlings, there were about a dozen of them, flew out across the North Sea and just kept circling out across the North Sea to jam the German radar that would pick up the incoming bombers, the Lancasters and B-17s and the whole armada that would be coming in to bomb the coastal areas the next morning. 
And when I discovered that this Gremlin teaser had a D-Day connection, I, that was just icing on the cake. I'll I'll give you a gift for your for your next uh, Cuban Missile Crisis build. Do you know that you can build a Tamiya F4D as a Cuban Missile Crisis aircraft? I did not know that. Yes, there was one Navy squadron that uh, VFP sixty three. I think I'm not sure of the number uh, that was dedicated to NORAD and to. Uh, U.S. continental defense, and when the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred, it got moved all the way to Key West, Florida. So you can take that excellent 48-scale Tamiya kit and build a Cuban Missile Crisis F-4D-1. Dave, I might have to twist your arm to maybe email me a little bit more of that story. I'd love to research that a little bit more. That, listen, that's on my list, too, so I'll be happy <laughs> to email you that. Well, back to a fundamental kind of question. I know what it takes to sand and wet sand and, and get mating surfaces right on about anything, except something that's almost two feet long um, or 18 inches or whatever. I, about 18. What are you sanding? How do you true a mating surface on something as long as a 48 scale sterling fuselage from a vacuum form kit? Um, well, one of the first challenges along that line, when I separated the fuselage halves from the sheets, the very first time I mated them together, I knew how I had a big problem. And the problem was that once they were cut free from the sheet plastic, the edges of the fuselage that you would meet, mate together bowed in on themselves. So they were kind of in the shape of a C. And it's like taking two C's, one that's backwards and squishing them together. And so the first challenge was, how am I going to I either have to just glue them together that way with a ton of glue and then use a whole load of milliput to fill in the, the resulting valleys, or I had to find a way to um, spread those C's up a little bit so they were more true. And what I did is just on one side of the fuselage, I went through and about every two or three inches, I used some quarter inch styrene uh sticks i guess and wedged them in there on the one side so it kind of spread that c apart and made them straight and that and then glued some strips along the interior edge around the whole thing so that the other side when i made it to it it would spread apart as well and that kind of gave me the right shape to make those together but you're right, there's there's so much variance and waviness in both sides of the plastic that you're you're not going to get a really good join. And it just wound up being a lot of super glue. <laughs> <laughs> and once I got the super glue in there, uh Milliput, I don't know if either of you have used Milliput before. Oh yes. Milliput for a long time was my go-to item. Yes, I love that stuff. And it was my lifesaver on filling all the gaps and the seams and and everything. When you glue the when I glued the wings to the fuselages, the fuselage halves, the gaps in there, some of them were almost an eighth inch gap. And so that milliput just filled all of that in nicely. 
and it doesn't shrink. I've discovered right. a lot of the other, like to me, a putty and some of these other putties, just you put them on and come back a half an hour later and <laughs> it looks like paint. I mean, right. it shrinks up and there's hardly anything there, but this milliput, you put it in there and it gives you, it gives you what you're, what you're seeing. Oh yeah. I love, and it sands beautifully. Yes. And you can thin it with water and sculpt it with a little water on your exacto knife blade or whatever you're yes. using. And it just smooths it out nicely. Good yep. stuff. Well, is there anything you've done differently or uh, I don't know what else to say. It, uh, it's a, a, a massive project. It's on and off again over four years, as you said, not, not four, four years continuous single build, but uh, it's, it's quite, a, uh, quite a project. Um, I can relate to a lot of what you've done and, and some of my builds in the past. Uh, I, I got to think you're pleased with it. I'm, I'm highly pleased. I, I'm very proud of it. Uh, yes, there's some things I would do differently. I mentioned how I would allow myself some breaks, and if I found myself losing my mojo over the project, I'd, I'd shelve it and go on to something else for a while and then come back to it. I wished I would have done that one more time. When I got the wings on and got the stabilizers on, I was getting all excited. Okay, I got to get this into paint, which I did, obviously, but I think I wished I would have spent a little bit more time on my weathering processes. I'm pleased with what I've got, but I could have done a lot better. But I just felt by that time, I just wanted to be done. I could see the <laughs> light at the end of the tunnel. And I do I want to take all this time to go in with the oils and the, the pastels and then go back and do it again? And, and the answer was no. <laughs> I just, I got to get this done. So when are you going to start your next one? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, Dave, I've got oh God, Fondry. No. I've got Fondry Miniatures 148 scale Halifax up on my shelf. Oh my lord! You mean the fondle fondle me miniatures? That's the one. Oh, and I, I don't know if you've seen that kit. But oh God, is, yes. He yes. doesn't have to. <laughs> it is not far better than no. this singer was. In fact, what I'll do, my gift to you, is I will send you five or six really big blocks of styrene that you can just carve a Halifax out of, because I'm pretty sure that you could do that just as easily as you could the Fondere Miniatures kit. I think you're right, Dave. And, oh. you know, there's a big temptation. That kit's obviously long out of production. I was looking on eBay the other day, and there's three or four on eBay that are going for some pretty good money. Yep. And so it's tempting to just maybe unload it, but it'd be fun to build it too. But you know what you've done now? Uh, Tamiya will be announcing sometime in the coming few weeks, a Dave, 48 don't, scale don't, short Sterling. Don't, <laughs> don't say that because I, yeah, this whole build that has been haunting me. Somebody's oh, yeah. going to do that. I'm going to get done with it. And somebody's going to produce a beautiful <laughs> injection molded kit of this. Oh yeah, it's always if you're, if you're done, it's okay. That's true, but it's always Tamiya, or you know, it's not Fondle Me Miniatures or Mach Two. It's going to be somebody who you know is going to produce a really beautiful kit of it. Yeah, and you know, if if they did, I'd be one of the first ones to buy the kit. Oh sure, absolutely. Oh absolutely. Well, Scott, I thank you for joining us tonight. 
And uh, it's been fun talking about this build because I, I, I don't build big 48 scale aircraft, but uh, I can certainly relate to some of the challenges you've had and some of the ways you've overcome them and the way you've approached this project and just your, your modeling style in general, as far as the way you approach this build. So it's been fun talking about this airplane because I, we, we went back and looked at that thing a lot. Three or four times. That's a vacuum form. Yes. And when the rubber hits the road, maybe most of it's not a vacuum form. Maybe it's just the, air, the airframe yeah. and the wings. When it comes down to it, yeah, you're right. You're right. But Mike and Dave, you know, I've, I've just started listening to your podcast. Um, and don't feel bad about that. You're the first ones modeling podcast that I've ever listened to. But I sure have enjoyed them. Well, good. Uh, you guys do a great show. And they're well, really thank interesting. You. And I'm looking forward to many more in the future. All right. Well, hopefully we'll see another big, big airplane from you in the future. Yeah. Hopefully so. Hope to meet you guys at nationals in the next year or two. We'll see you at Omaha. Maybe we'll see you in Omaha. That'd be great. All right, man. Well, thank you. You bet. Thank you, guys. Well, Dave, I enjoyed that because, you know, he sent us all those pictures. We'll, we'll link to in the show notes and it's just, uh, that's just my kind of build. I, yeah. I, I don't know if I'd ever build a vacuform model that big, but uh, in the end, there weren't a whole lot left that was vacuform by the time he was in, done with it, the, <laughs> yeah. the major the major airframe components. That was about it. Um, yeah. yeah. And the, and the turrets and canopies, but holy smokes, what a whopper of an airplane. It is. It's a, that's a, a and, and he has something that you're not going to see on the tables every time, uh, you know, you go to a local show or even a national convention. No, it's not in just, 48 scale. It's, it's an impressive model. Stand in awe of people who can do vacuum forms. Well, he pulled it off. So kudos to you, man. Amen. Amen. Well, Dave, we're getting close to the end of this episode. And uh, I was wondering how that uh, modeling flu is working for you. Well, you know what? You know I like Hefeweizens. Uh, I'll I'll tell you this is the first uh, uh, beer I've had from this particular brewery. And while it may not be my my favorite wheat beer ever, it was very drinkable, about 5.2% alcohol by volume. So it's not going to hit you upside the back of the head. A decent modeling fluid for a night at the bench where, you know, you've got a fair amount of work in front of you. And I I know better than to ask what you think of the of the bullet. Well, to put a little different twist on it, it's kind of the utility infielder of bourbons. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Utility infielder might be selling it a little short. It, it may be. Might be a you know utility fil- infielder with a little bit of a value above replacement. It's a little higher than normal. I think so. It's it's got a little spice to it. It's what I like about it, and it's uh, it's not too hot. It's smooth enough for the price. Less than twenty five bucks a a bottle. It's a it's a good utility utility infielder. Well, good. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it, Mike. Uh, we're we're about at the end of the episode. Uh, do you have any shout outs? I've got a few shout outs. First, I'd like to thank the folks who've tapped into our new Patreon page as an avenue to support the show. John Volker, Brian Dinklow, uh, Chris McLean, Evan McCallum, and John Allen have all joined us on Patreon. And if you'd like to do that to make it easier for you, a lot of you guys have been making some recurring payments and asked for this. Uh, a couple of the names who asked are on this list. Uh, it's www.patreon.com slash plastic model mojo, or you can just get on patreon.com and in their search area. Search for Plastic Model Mojo, and you'll you'll get taken the opportunity to uh, to contribute that way on a, on a regular basis. 
Uh, I'd also like to thank all our regulars who are using the PayPal link that can be found at www.plasticmodelmojo.com in the upper right-hand corner of the screen. Uh, you'll find a heart icon that will take you directly to a PayPal page where you can make a direct one-time contribution and you can go back as many times as you want. We sure appreciate it. Or you could use the Patreon. Uh, we really appreciate every dime you folks send. It really helps us out a lot and makes this a lot less of a burden on us, at least in the financial arena, because we know we've got a lot of it covered thanks to our great fan base. And we really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you very much. Amen to what he said. For for my shout out, you know, we've got, by definition, the folks are listening to us like to listen to podcasts. Now, there's plenty of, uh, of modeling-related podcasts out there, you know, but you can go to the um, modelingpodcast.com to see all of them, and hopefully you listen to them. But if you're looking for more podcast content, there are two podcasts, uh, history podcasts, that I would highly recommend. Uh, one is a fairly new one called The History of the Americans. That's Americans. Uh, the History of the Americans. It's done by a uh, professor down in Austin, Texas. And it charts the history of what would become the United States from the voyages of Columbus in 1492. Uh, he's up now to almost the establishment of Jamestown. And there's 20 some odd episodes in just to get to that point. One of the nice things is, and one of his his real points in doing the podcast is he avoids presentism, which is the, the tendency in modern study of history to judge what occurred by our modern day present values rather than, hey, this is what these people knew and experienced at the time. So it's really nice for a good, unbiased perspective of history. And then the other podcast I would recommend is there's one by longtime podcaster Mike Duncan, who did the history of Rome. Uh, he's got a series called Revolutions, where he goes back and goes through revolutions, starting with the English Civil War going all the way up to now he's into the Russian Revolution. And he's 60-some-odd 60, 60 episodes into the Russian Revolution, and it's just now getting to the point where the February Revolution has occurred and the October Revolution's around the corner. So I highly, highly recommend both of those podcasts if you're looking for more podcast content. Well, I got one more. Okay. It's back to mini art. I'd like to shout out mini art models and specifically uh, Mr. Uh, ben Mearson, who is uh, one of their, uh, I guess, their customer service representatives. I emailed them and told them I was coming up short on the de decals for that kit because I, I needed to label all four, all the boxes in the kit for the 57 millimeter gun. And there's just not enough to do that in the kit. Uh, he informed me that that kit is no longer in production and they don't have the decals for it, but they have a another set that's got like five or six different calibers of ammunition in it. And he's like, can you use this set? And he sent me a, a picture of the artwork. And I'm like, yeah, but I'll need two of them. And he said, well, send us pictures of your kit and the, and the plastic parts that you're using and uh, we'll send you these decals. So I sent him pictures of my build. 
and the parts in the box and all that. And, uh, came pretty darn quick. They came less than a week. I don't know how it got here that fast, but it did uh, maybe, maybe a week, but, uh, an envelope with the uh, two decal sets from that other am- ammunition set is going to let me finish this project. So Ben, uh, probably not listening, but if you are uh great customer service, yes, I uh, really appreciate it. We, and, and man, you, you need to, for the listeners out there, you need to, when a company steps, a model company steps up and gives you great customer service, let people know through, through whatever, method you can either just you know go into your local club meeting and say hey these guys did me a solid or posting it on facebook or in whatever modeling groups you're in let people know who the good guys are out there who who stand behind their product and go the extra mile yeah we've given them a couple yawns so it's kind of ironic (laughs) yes (laughs) <laughs> true but now we've given them some shout outs too oh, so have, to be, to be fair we, we we've been we haven't criticized their product other than some of the some of the choices have been a little bit interesting i'm still <laughs> not sure about pigeons well somebody has yeah uh, you know what if they keep up with that good good customer service i may have to eat squab you may have about to buy a set of pigeons <laughs> <laughs> yep Well, you got any more? No, that's it for me. Well, I think we're done then, Dave. All right, Mike. You know what they say. So many kids. So little time, Dave. See you soon. I think so. I think y'all see you in Louisville at the show. You got it. All right.